0: The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Gracious God and most merciful Father who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, assist us with thy spirit that it may be written in our hearts to our everlasting comfort to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome back and Happy New Year to you. We are in Matthew chapter 16 today, and we are beginning at verse 21. So if you have your Bibles, you'll want to Open up to chapter 16, verses 21, and we'll go ahead and read through the end of the chapter. And from that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, Before the break, we took a look at the first part of this account, and that, of course, was Jesus leading His disciples up to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which was the northernmost section of Palestine in the Lord's Day, to the foothills of Mount Hermon. And there we said, in this rather odd place, an unusual place for self-respecting Jews to go, Jesus put to them a question. And the question was, who do you say that I am? Initially, the question was, who do men say that I am? It was Jesus' way of asking the disciples what people were saying about him. And, of course, there were all kinds of rumors that were flying about. Some say you're a prophet. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're Moses, any number of things. John the Baptist back from the dead. And Jesus knew that. But then he got very personal and he said to them, but who do you say that I am? It's not enough, you see, for anybody to answer what other people think about Jesus. When it all comes down to it, we have to make a decision for him ourselves. And that's what Jesus was doing with Peter he said but what do you say And it's interesting at that point most of the disciples fell silent but Peter spoke up and presumably spoke on behalf of the others when he said you are the Christ the son of the living God at which point Jesus answered him and said Simon blessed are you for flesh and blood has revealed this to you not has not revealed this to you but my father who is in heaven And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus went on, I will give you the kings to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. But the very next verse says, and from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the priests, chiefs, priests chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. Uh, over the course of the past several months, one of the things that I've been trying to impart to you is that there are a great many misconceptions in the world today as to what Christianity really is. And three of the great misconceptions that we have these days is that Christianity, the heart of Christianity, the essence of Christianity is a creed that if you can stand up and say or believe certain things about Jesus Christ or about the Christian gospel, then that is the essence of being a follower of the Lord. And we said that there's no denying the fact that Christianity certainly contains a creed. Uh, You need to believe certain doctrines. Doctrine does matter. It's not insignificant. But it is perfectly possible to be orthodox in your theology and still miss the heart of Christianity. The greatest example of this, of course, would be the Pharisees themselves. The Pharisees were not the liberals of their day. With the advantage of hindsight, we look back on the scribes and the Pharisees and we see them as villains because they spent the greater part of their time trying to plot against Jesus. And so we see them as enemies, but you need to understand that in their day, they were the conservatives of their day. They believed every jot and tittle of the law. They believed it all, and they took it very seriously. But while they took it seriously, they really didn't understand what it meant to be a Christian. So, creed, as important as it is, is not the essence of the Christian faith. Nor, we said, is a code of conduct. Some people would say that to be a Christian means to follow a a certain code of conduct. The golden rule, for example, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If you do that, then you are living the Christian life and you are therefore an heir of the kingdom of God. Well, we said there's no denying the fact that Christianity, as it contains a code of conduct, also contains that creed. And that code of conduct is very important. It's the highest code of conduct. It is the code to love your neighbor as you love yourself. And yet, even though a code of conduct is an essential part of the Christian faith, it is not the heart of the Christian faith. The world is filled with people who are moral, who are unbelievers. I think I told you that I once had a lady in a congregation I served whose son-in-law was Jewish, and she came up to me and she said, I want you to meet him because he's the best Christian I ever knew. Now I know what she meant by that. She meant that he was a moral fellow. He was a good fellow. He treated her better than many of the Christian friends that she had. But if you would have asked him, he would have denied the fact that he was a follower of Jesus Christ. So as important as a code of conduct may be to our life as Christian people, it is not the essence, it's not the heart of Christianity. Others might say, well, Christianity at its heart is simply a collection of religious ceremonies. It's going through the motions, it's attending church on a regular basis, it's being faithful in saying your prayers. And Don't get me wrong, I'll be the first one to tell you that going to church is a good thing. Uh, I don't want to discourage that in any way whatsoever. And yet, all of these things, as important as they are, are not the heart of Christianity. You can have all of those things, and the example we gave was John Wesley prior to his conversion. You can have all of those things. You can be moral and upright in your behavior. You can be orthodox in your theology. You can be faithful in your church attendance and your worship and still miss the heart of Christianity. Why? Because Christianity is not things. Christianity is a person. Did he not show up? There he is. Christianity is a person. It is the person of Jesus Christ. And because it is the person of Jesus Christ, the heart of Christianity is having a relationship with the person. Now this is something you need to understand. It is not enough to know about Jesus Christ. There are lots of people in the world who know about Jesus Christ, some of whom would tell you they are not followers or disciples of Jesus Christ, but they know a great deal about Him. The problem is they don't know Him. Jesus Christ didn't simply exist upon this earth 2,000 years ago. We believe as Christians that he died, he rose again, he ascended to the Father, and one day he's coming again in glory to judge the quick and the dead. He is a living Lord, and because he is a living Lord, a living person, you and I are capable of having a relationship, a personal relationship with him. And that is the heart of what it means to be a Christian. It's to have that living, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Christ. I had some professors in seminary who knew more about Jesus Christ than I did at the time. But there was a fatal defect in them. And that fatal defect was that they really didn't believe any of the things that they were teaching. I actually had a professor of New Testament, incidentally, who didn't believe in the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. What he believed was that the Spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of the disciples in those days following the crucifixion. He knew a great deal about Jesus Christ, he didn't know Jesus Christ. The way I put it to you is that it's possible to know a great deal about the Queen of England, but that doesn't mean that you necessarily know the Queen of England. So at the heart of Christianity is not a collection of things, it is a person. And at the heart of being a Christian is having a relationship with that person, Jesus Christ. Now, In order to have that relationship, two things are required. And that's really where we get into today's text. Two things are required if you're going to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's only by having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that you can have eternal salvation, the very thing that your soul desires. What are those two things that are required? The first is you need to know who Jesus Christ is. You can't be in any confusion about who he is as to his true identity. If you ask many people today who Jesus Christ is, they're going to give you any number of answers. Some people will tell you that Jesus Christ is a great prophet. Even the Muslims, incidentally, believe that Jesus Christ was a great prophet. Not as great as Muhammad necessarily, but he is nevertheless a leading figure. He was a great prophet. Others might be willing to say that Jesus Christ is a great moral example to us. Jesus Christ was constantly talking about peace. He told Peter to put away his sword. He told us that we were to love one another as we love ourselves. Some of the things that Jesus said were absolutely astounding. And the world certainly would be a better place if we followed Jesus' example. And so many people are willing to say that Jesus is a great moral exemplar. Others are willing to say that Jesus is a great teacher. Some of the things that Jesus taught are amazing. The Sermon on the Mount is extraordinary. But are these the essence of who the man is? Well, Peter gives us the answer as to who Jesus Christ is. It took place here in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And everybody said, well, you're a great prophet. You're a great moral exemplar. You're a great teacher. And Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? And Peter's reply was, you are the Christ. The word Christ means the anointed one. That is the promised Savior, the promised Messiah. And then Peter went on to say one thing more. He said, you are the Son of the living God. If you're going to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ... You need to understand who He is, and you cannot be in any confusion about that. He is the Savior, your Savior, my Savior, the Savior of the world, and He is the Son of the living God. That is to say, He is co-equal with the other persons of the Trinity, the Father and the Holy Spirit. That's who Jesus Christ is. No mere man. We've just finished celebrating Christmas. We need to understand. Sometimes, you know, When it comes to Christmas, you've all heard the expression, familiarity breeds contempt. I don't know when it comes to Christmas that familiarity necessarily breeds contempt. I hope not. But sometimes I think it does breed apathy. We have so domesticated the story of Christmas that in some respects it loses its power. It's this lovely little picture of of a helpless little baby in his mother's arm. I want you to understand that that little baby who was reaching out for his mother's loving touch in that cold Palestinian night was the one who had created the heavens and the earth. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last, the Word by whom all things were made, who had become flesh. Make no mistake about it. That is who Jesus Christ is. And that same baby whose hands were reaching out for his mother would 33 years later be stretched out upon a cross to pay the price for your sin and for mine that you and I might be reconciled to a holy and righteous That is who Jesus Christ is. And that is what Peter expressed in those words. And that is why Jesus turned to him and he said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this has not been revealed to you by men. You haven't come up with this on your own. This has been revealed to you by God. So that's the first thing that you need to understand about Jesus Christ. Who he really is. And you can't be at any confusion about this. It is not enough. To believe that Jesus Christ is a great prophet. It is not enough to believe that Jesus Christ is a great moral example. It is not enough to believe that Jesus Christ is a great teacher. He is all of those things. But if you cannot confess that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, you can never be a Christian. So at the heart of Christianity is a person At the heart of being a Christian is having a relationship with that person. In order to have a relationship with that person, two things are required. You need to understand first who he is. And second, you need to understand what he came to this earth to do. It is just as important as understanding who he is. You need to understand what he came to earth to do. And while Peter provides us with the answer to the first question, Jesus himself provides us with an answer to the second question. Question, verse 21, And from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Who is Jesus Christ? the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. What has He come to do? To save mankind by offering Himself as a sacrifice upon the cross and on the third day rising again for our justification. That is who He is. That is what He's come to do. This is what theologians call the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Those two things are essential to being a Christian. If you think about it, this is the way we oftentimes introduce people, don't we? If you introduce two individuals, you'll sometimes say, John, I'd like you to meet Mary. Mary is a surgeon. Mary, I'd like you to meet John. John is a stockbroker. What you're doing is you're introducing the person. You're saying this is who they are, and this is what they do. Well, there is a sense of which that is exactly what this section of the gospel does with Jesus Christ. It introduces, it says, I'd like you to meet Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the Son of the living God, and he's come to earth to die for your sins and to rise again for your salvation. Now that's what this section of Matthew is really all about. Now, the question that we have to ask ourselves is this, did the disciples understand all of that? I'm gonna get to the question, do you understand all of that? But certainly one question is, did the disciples understand all of that? That's what was being revealed to them here in that encounter with Jesus up there in Caesarea Philippi. Well, the answer is, in one sense, yes, and in another sense, no. In one sense, they didn't understand any of this. Certainly not the last part. And we know that. Why? Well, we know that in large measure because of the reaction that they gave to Jesus' death. It's interesting. They followed Jesus the whole way to Calvary. But what happened after Jesus' crucifixion? Where do we find the disciples? Well, first of all, they all scattered in the Garden of Gethsemane. John even ran away and left behind his clothes. We're told that the the soldiers grabbed hold of him. And he he pulled so vigorously that he left his cloak behind. (laughs) And on the first day of the week, when the women went to the tomb and found the tomb empty and came back and reported to Peter and the others, where were they? Behind locked doors, fearing for the authorities. Or even told that some of the disciples, the Emmaus disciples in Luke chapter 24, were leaving Jerusalem. They were departing. They were heading out. And we're told that when Jesus encountered them on the road, the risen Jesus Christ, he looked at them and they were downcast. They didn't recognize who he was, and he asked them why they were so discouraged. And they said, Have you not been in Jerusalem? Have you not heard the words? There was this Jesus that we had followed, given up everything to follow after. We thought that he was the Messiah. Thought, past tense. But it's been third, three days since he was crucified. And what's more, some of the women came to the tomb and said that the body had been taken or that he was not there and were confused. Now, what I find interesting is that in this section of Matthew's gospel, what does the text says? It says that Jesus began at that point to teach his disciples. This was the first time that Jesus really began to teach them what he had come to do. But he didn't stop there. The rest of this gospel, the rest of the other gospels are filled with accounts of Jesus continuously teaching the disciples that this was all part of God's plan. This was not some sort of messy accident. He explained to them that he had to go to Jerusalem, that he had to suffer and die, and on the third day he had to rise again. This was all part of the plan. This is one of the reasons why Thomas gets such a severe rebuke by Jesus later on. You know, we all remember doubting Thomas. Thomas is... Maybe one of my favorite disciples. Maybe even more than Peter. Because Thomas is a rational man. Peter's not rational. He's emotional, as we will see. But but Thomas was rational. And what's more, Thomas gets a bad rap because he was actually a heroic figure. When Jesus, we're told, set his face to Jerusalem to go there, The other disciples knew that there was going to be trouble in Jerusalem, particularly with the scribes and the Pharisees plotting against the Lord. They knew there was going to be difficulty. And so the other disciples discouraged Jesus from going to Jerusalem. Now, he was determined, but they were always trying to pull him back from that. And there was only one who said, if he has to go to Jerusalem and die, let's go and die with him. And you know who it was? It was Thomas, but nobody remembers Courageous Thomas. We only remember doubting Thomas. I think we need to sort of balance it out a little bit. And the others doubt it as well. But you know the story. On the first day of the week, when Jesus appeared to the disciples, Thomas wasn't there. He was someplace else. When he gets back home, the other disciples report that they've seen the risen Lord. And what does Thomas say? I don't believe it. He says, I refuse to believe it until I can take my fingers and put it in the nail prints, until I can take my hand and put it in the side, I will not believe. Now, if you think about it, it was not necessarily a bad response. Uh, Thomas had seen what had happened to Jesus. He had seen Jesus publicly flogged within an inch of his life by the Roman soldiers. He had seen Jesus forced to carry that heavy cross through the streets of Jerusalem, falling multiple times until eventually Simon of Cyrene was seized from the crowd and forced to help him. He had seen the nails driven through Jesus' flesh. He had seen the sword piercing Jesus' side. He had seen the crown of thorns piercing his steady brow. And he had seen the Lord's lifeless and limp body taken down from the cross. And he knew what death looked like. And that body had been placed in a tomb... And everybody else had scattered, everybody else had lost hope, and Thomas was no exception. So why does Jesus upbraid Thomas? For the simple reason that Thomas says, the only way I'm going to believe is if I get some evidence. And Jesus, when he saw him, said to him, Thomas, blessed are you. You believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who've not seen and yet still believe. It wasn't that Thomas required evidence in order to believe. The problem was that Jesus over the course of the previous three years had provided ample evidence for them to believe. They had seen Jesus, open the eyes of the blind, cleanse lepers, walk on the water, calm the seas, feed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread, two small fish. And all along he is saying, now understand this is who I am, but I want you to understand I've come to do something. I've come to go to Jerusalem, be betrayed at the hands of my own people, crucified, and on the third day I'll come back. If you had witnessed all that they had witnessed, wouldn't you believe My goodness, on the third day, these men should have been waiting with great anticipation for Jesus to burst forth from the tomb. They should have been keeping vigil outside the tomb. And instead they had what? They had lost faith. They had lost faith. What a tragedy it was. That was the problem for poor Thomas. So, did they understand who Jesus was and what he'd come to do? Well, there's a sense in which, no, they didn't understand at all. But in another sense, they understood all too well, didn't they? That's why Peter responded the way that he did when Jesus said that he was going to Jerusalem to be betrayed and crucified and raised again. What did Peter say to that? He says, God forbid, he took Jesus aside and he said, let me tell you something, that's never going to happen to you. God forbid, that must never happen to you. See, there was a sense in which they didn't understand it all, and yet there was a sense in which they did understand it all. Well, how did Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke of him? Well, Peter received the rebuke himself. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. How would you feel? If I turned to you suddenly and said, Get behind me, you devil. <laughs> How'd you feel about that? Did it make you feel pretty good? How many of you think when you read Jesus' words that that was a bit of a harsh reaction? I mean, Peter had a somewhat limited perspective on things. I mean, should the punishment fit the crime? Well, why does Jesus turn around and say to him, Get behind me, Satan? I mean, moments before, Peter had been what? Blessed. He'd, he'd received divine insight, and now, two seconds later, he's what? He's Satan, and he's a hindrance. Before, he's got divine insight, and he's the rock upon which Christ is going to build his church. Two seconds later, he's Satan and a hindrance. Now, I've got to be honest with you. The human part of me looks at that and says, well, wow, that's a rather severe rebuke on the part of Jesus. Perhaps he could have been a little kinder and gentler to poor Peter. Peter. Why does Jesus react to Peter in the way that he does? It's because Peter at that particular moment was saying precisely the same thing that Satan had said to Jesus sometime before. You may recall that following his baptism in the Jordan River that Jesus did What? He went out into the wilderness where he was tempted for 40 days by the devil. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 16 and flip back to the beginning of this gospel, to Matthew chapter 4. Let's just take a look at the story again. Matthew chapter 4. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry, and the tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And here it comes. You'll notice that each temptation gets more intense. And again, the devil took him up to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these will I give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, "Begone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. What was the great temptation that Satan put before Jesus at the very end? It was to have all of the glory, all of the majesty, all of the kingdoms of the earth, everything that the world can offer without the cross. And that's what Peter was suggesting to Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Savior. And it's good to be your friend. I mean, let's be honest, it's good to be close to the king, isn't it? And that's what Jesus was, that's what they were saying. But when Jesus said, well, let me tell you what it means to be the Messiah, the Savior, to be the king, it means that I've got to become a servant, I've got to be lifted up, but not on a throne, that my kingdom is not a physical kingdom, it is a kingdom that is built in men's hearts, and it is a kingdom that is characterized not by glory, but by suffering. Peter says, God forbid, not that. We want you to have all the glory, but we don't want you to have the cross. It was the exact same temptation, you see, that the devil had offered to Jesus all those years before. And that's why the Lord responds as he does. Let me tell you something. That is what Satan will always offer us. Oh, you can be a follower of Jesus Christ. You can have all the blessings of the Christian life, but you don't have to have the cross. Well, understand this, my friends, there is no glory without the cross. St. Paul got it right. He said, God forbid that I should glory in anything but the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' response to Peter teaches us two great truths, and that's the first of them. Namely, that the cross is absolutely central to the Christian faith. The death of Jesus Christ for your sin and for mine is at the heart of what Jesus Christ came to do. If you don't get anything else, but you get that, you've got enough. If you understand that that is what Jesus Christ came to do. Do you ever notice that when we say the creed, we go immediately from suffered under Pontius Pilate to crucified, died, and was buried. That's the whole of Jesus' life in the creed. Do you ever think about that? We believe in God the Father Almighty, the Creator of the heavens and the earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was born of the Virgin Mary, and then what? Suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Now, for three years, Jesus was preaching teaching, performing miracles, all of those things, but the creed makes no mention of all of those things. The creed goes from the moment of Jesus' birth to the moment of His trial before Pontius Pilate, His suffering, His death, and His resurrection. Now, does that mean that the authors of the creed didn't know that Jesus had three years of a teaching ministry and a healing ministry? Of course they did. But they understood that all of those things were what? pointing toward this great climactic moment when Jesus would mount the arms of the cross. The cross of Jesus Christ is absolutely central to Christianity. Take a look at these two passages from the Apostle Paul. Keep your finger there in Matthew and turn to the right to the book of Galatians. Galatians chapter 6, where Paul says this, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. It's really interesting, if you look at Paul's life, Prior to his conversion, Paul boasted about a lot of things. Primarily, he boasted about his pedigree. He boasted about his family heritage. He boasted about the fact that he was of a particular tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. He boasted about the fact that he had accomplished so many things, that he'd been a Pharisee, that he was a keeper of the law. After his conversion, what does he boast in? He boasts in one thing, the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, so many times... We view our lives like a ledger book. And on the left-hand side, we list all of our assets. And on the right-hand side, we list all of our liabilities. Now, those of you who have been in business, you know how this works. And if you're going to be in the black, you've got to make sure that you have what? More in the asset column than you do in the liability column. Isn't that the way it works? I don't have a lot of money, so it's not really a big issue for me. But you know how it works, assets and liabilities. And sometimes when it comes to spiritual matters, that's the way we look at it. We think, well, I've got all of these assets going for me, and I've got a couple of liabilities over here because, after all, nobody's perfect. But when it's all done and God comes to judge, he's going to look at all the assets that I have, and he's going to look at all the liabilities I have, and the assets are going to outnumber the liabilities, and so I'm going to get in. That's what we think. Well, Paul says nobody had more in the asset column from a physical point of view than I did. He said, I was a Pharisee. I was of the most loyal tribe of the Jews. I was a pure-blooded Jew. I'm not half-blooded. My mother and father were both Jews. I was trained as a Pharisee. As far as legalism, righteousness was concerned, I was faultless before the law. He said, but having met Jesus Christ... I now consider all of these things as loss, as refuse, as garbage compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ. He says, God forbid that I should boast in anything but what, what Jesus Christ did for me on the cross. That is the heart of the Christian faith. There is a reason why when you come into a Christian church like St. Philip's, what you see first and foremost before anything else is a cross. There is a reason why there is a cross atop our steeple. Understand, my friends, that in the first century, the cross was a symbol of suffering and death. It was a symbol of capital punishment. My goodness! If you were to take somebody from the first century and transport them 2,000 years into the future and allow them to view the Charleston skyline today in the year 2020... They would be appalled. We look at those church steeples and we say, this is the holy city, what a lovely thing. One of the few cities in America still that has a skyline dominated by church steeples. It's a lovely sight, but somebody in the first century would have been absolutely appalled because the cross was a symbol of suffering, pain, and death, the most degrading death imaginable. It would be like taking somebody today and transporting them 2,000 years in the history and on the top of buildings what they would see were lethal syringes and electric chairs. No kidding. But to us, that which was a symbol of suffering and pain has become a symbol of life and hope and immortality. Why? Because Jesus Christ embraced it and transformed it forever. And that's why the cross is at the very heart of the Christian faith. Paul in 1 Corinthians said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those of us who are being saved, he says, it is the very power of God. Paul says two things. The cross is the power of God, so God forbid that I should boast in anything but the cross. Now, why do you suppose the cross is an offense to those who are perishing? You know, there are many people today who find the message of Jesus and his death upon the cross to be offensive. There are many people that don't like this. Let me tell you, one of the earliest forms of Christian graffiti, it was found in Rome in the first century, and it shows the figure of a man on a cross, the figure of a man on a cross with the words below it, Alexandros worships his God. So it was obviously a picture of the Christian crucifixion because many people were crucified in the first century, but only one claimed to be a god. So it says Alexandros worships his god. It's the image of a man on a cross with the head of an ass. That's how the early opponents of Christianity viewed the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It was absolute foolishness. Now, why is the cross offensive? Two reasons. First, because of what the cross says about us. Jesus Christ came into this world to do what? To save sinners. And what the cross tells us is that you and I were so sinful, so far gone, that the only way that God could save us was to offer His very own son, and nobody likes to be taught that they are that bad off. How many of you have ever seen the John Wayne movie, Rooster Cogburn? I'm not talking about True Grit. That was the first movie in which he played this character. He reprised the role in a later movie with Catherine Hepburn called Rooster Cogburn. And in that, he plays this one-eyed old Marshall, who drinks too much, eats too much, and is kind of dirty and you know, doesn't bathe enough and all of this. And, and there's this wonderful give and take you know, between John Wayne, who's playing that figure, and Katharine Hepburn, who's playing this missionary, as only Katharine Hepburn can play it, reprising a role that she played in The African Queen. So she's this missionary and he's this one-eyed, old, you know, smelly marshal who drinks too much. And throughout the movie, there's this give and take, and she's constantly needling him. She's, she's telling him that he needs to clean up his act, that he needs to stop drinking, that he needs to start dieting, that he needs to do this, that, and the other thing. And finally, at one point, she recognizes that she's really gotten under his skin. He's, he's just given her the silent treatment. And finally, Catherine Hepburn turns to him, and she says, Reuben, that's what she called him, Reuben, you don't like me, do you? And old Marshall Cogburn turns with that one eye and he looks at her and he goes, Sister, it ain't that I don't like you. It's just that no man likes to be told that he's high-smelling and (laughs) low-down. Yeah, there's truth in there, isn't there? Who likes to be told that they're high-smelling and low-down? That's what the cross does. The cross says that you and I, without exception, are sinners. And we're not just little sinners. We are such great sinners that Jesus Christ had to come and die. The terrible, humiliating, degrading death of the cross in order to redeem us. As bad as you think you are, you're worse. That's what the cross says. And so we find the cross to be offensive because of what it says about us. We also find the cross offensive because of what it says about God, that he cannot turn a blind eye to our sin. I mean, let's be honest, we, we live with imperfect people on a daily basis, don't we? And we sort of have to give over, get over that. We, we sort of have to look the other way. We have to forgive, and if we can, forget. And so we have a hard time understanding why God can't do the same. All right, we're not perfect people. Okay, we blow it. But why can't God just sort of turn a blind eye and and, and forgive it all? and, And that's all there is to it. And what we don't understand is that the same God whose property is always to have mercy is also a God of justice. And let's be honest, we want justice we want justice in the world. How many of you want to know that somebody like an Adolf Hitler or a Mussolini or a Stalin one day is not going to be called to account for all of the terrible crimes that he's perpetrated against innocent people? Everything within us cries out for justice, not for ourselves, but for other people. We want justice. Isn't that right? And what the cross tells us is that God will not turn a blind eye to others and not to us. God will have justice. And it is only there on the cross that God's love and mercy and his justice meet in the outstretched arms of Jesus Christ who pays the price. Who as the innocent victim pays the price for the guilty. Jesus paid a debt he didn't owe because you and I owed a debt that we couldn't pay. And that is what the cross teaches. And Paul understood that that meant that the cross was the only hope for him. It is the only hope for you. It is the only hope for the world. Bishop J.C. Ryle was the great Church of England Bishop of Liverpool, first Bishop of Liverpool in the late 19th, early 20th century. He was one of the great giants of the evangelical faith and this is what he had to say about the subject of the cross. He said, On matters of church government and the form of worship, men may differ from us and yet reach heaven in safety. But on the matter of Christ's atoning death, the way of peace... Truth is only one. If we are wrong here, he said, we are ruined forever. Error on many points is only a skin disease. Error about Christ's atoning death is a disease of the heart. Here, let us take our stand. Let nothing move us from this ground. The sum of all our hopes must be that Christ has died for us. Give up that doctrine. And we have no hope at all. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, who was a contemporary of J.C. Ryle, and said that J.C. Ryle was the best man in the Church of England. Spurgeon was a Baptist. But also a great preacher, the prince of preachers in his day. Charles Haddon Spurgeon had this to say. He said, the atonement, that is Christ's death on our behalf, is the brain and spinal cord of Christianity. Take away the cleansing blood and what is left to the guilty. Deny the substitutionary work of Jesus, and you have denied all that is precious in the New Testament. Never, never let us endure one wavering, doubtful thought about this all-important truth. The chief aim of the enemy's assaults is to get rid of Christ to get rid of his suffering in the place of men. Some may say they can embrace the rest of the gospel. But what rest is there? What is there left? A bloodless, Christless gospel is fit neither for the land nor for the dunghill. It neither honors God nor converts men. Paul summed it up a little simpler by simply saying, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that this reaction that Jesus gives to Peter teaches us. It teaches us that the cross, my friends, is at the heart of the Christian faith. And we give it up and we give up everything that is precious. We give up all hope of salvation so cling to it hold fast to it and glory in it here's the second thing however jesus rebuke of peter teaches us that it is perfectly possible to be right one moment and to be wrong the next in the case of peter to be terribly wrong the next i've always said that peter is the man who passes the course but still passes the test but still flunks the course On the one hand, he got it right. Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God, and this had come to him, not by men, but by the Father in heaven. But on the other hand, Peter was dead wrong when he tried to discourage Jesus or prevent Jesus from going to the cross. But here's the thing that's really remarkable about Peter. Even though Peter was wrong one moment, when he'd been right just a moment before, Peter, nevertheless, had a teachable spirit. That is to say, he was willing to learn from his mistakes. The real question is, are we? Do we have teachable spirits? All right, Peter didn't understand everything. He he wanted the glory without the cross But Peter eventually came to understand how important and how necessary the cross was. It's interesting, the very one who wanted to prevent Jesus from going to the cross on the day of Pentecost stood up and proclaimed Jesus Christ and him crucified. And for the rest of his life, Peter's whole ministry involved making Jesus a public figure crucified, a public placarding of Christ for the rest of his life. Peter learned from that rebuke. I can't tell you one of the most important features of a true Christian heart is a teachable spirit. Uh, Having been a rector for many years now in three different places, I've had to work with a lot of assistants. And for the most part, uh, my young assistants have always been really remarkable people. But every now and then, you get one who thinks that he knows better than the rector. Every now and then he does, but it's few and far between, I can assure you. And one of the things you recognize as a rector is that it is your responsibility to train these young people up in the way that they should go. Uh, Let me tell you something. I remember being a young assistant, fresh out of seminary, wet behind the ears, and thinking that I knew so much better than the rector. So the bishop decided to give me a chance. And he took me out of one church and he threw me into another as a rector at the age of 26. Well, we survived. I wouldn't say we thrived, but we survived. And by the end of it, I had come to the realization that I needed to be a little more humble than I was. And I prayed to the Lord that the opportunity ever arose for me to have another chance of being an assistant where I could learn and have a teachable spirit, I would jump at the opportunity. And that opportunity came for me one day. I got a call from the rector down at St. Helena's in Buford and he said, I don't even know why I'm calling you. He said, but your, your, your face came to my mind as I was praying and I'm looking for a new assistant. Would you like to come down here? He said, I know you're the rector of your own congregation. Would you like to come down here and be my assistant? And I said, yes. And for six and a half years, I made it my goal just to watch and to learn from him. And when he departed and went off to become the dean of a cathedral, I was elevated to be the rector. But I would never have been ready if I had not been humbled and had a teachable spirit and was willing to learn from my mistakes. One of the great virtues of the Apostle Peter is that he was learning, learning to grow from his mistakes. We all need to grow, my friends. We've never arrived. You will never arrive. I don't care if you've been a Christian for 60, 70, 80 years. You have not arrived. You're never going to be glorified until you pass the threshold of this life into the next. But the starting point for all spiritual growth is this. Jesus died for our sins and salvation is found in no other. That's the starting point. If you don't have that, there's no growth. If you start there, the potential for growth is enormous. Now we could stop right there, and we've only got three minutes left. And part of me says we ought to stop there, but then part of me says, Nah, let's not. So let's take a look at verses 24 and following. And this will close out the chapter. Jesus explains what he had come to earth to do. The disciples now have been told who he was. The Christ, the Son of the living God. They had been told what he had come to earth to do, to die upon the cross for their salvation. That was the starting point for their growth, who he was and what he would come to do. But I want you to understand something about the Christian faith. Christianity is not just a door. I'm going to mention this in a sermon coming up in a few weeks. Christianity is not a door, Jesus is the door. But you don't enter through a door to stand in the vestibule or in the foyer for the rest of your life. Jesus' invitation to his disciples is what? Follow me. If you enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ, it's like entering into a marriage. The wedding is not the end of the story. Anybody that's been married can tell you that. It may be a great day, but let me tell you something, the journey has just begun. And there will be times of joy and sorrow, times of ecstasy, but times of great despair. And it's only as you make the journey and get to the end of the journey that you can look back And say it was well worth the effort. And that's what Jesus explains to the disciples in verses 24 and following. He explains that yes, he had come to earth to bear the cross. But cross bearing was not just for him. It's for you. And it's for me as well. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Anyone who would be my disciple must do what? Deny Himself, take up His cross, and follow. Follow for how long? To your life's end. You know, when we think about crosses, you're going to hear some of this again in a sermon in a couple of weeks, I'm sorry, but it bears repeating. And by that point, you may have forgotten what I said anyway. When we think about cross-bearing today, we tend to think of cross-bearing in terms of afflictions, don't we? I got a difficult spouse. He's just a cross I have to bear. Isn't that the way we think of it? I want you to understand the way Jesus presents cross-bearing here here. It is not an affliction. It is not something that is thrust upon you. Jesus said, if you would be my disciple, you have to, first of all, deny yourself, which is a very hard thing to do. Because most of us are concerned with self-fulfillment, not self-denial. The second thing we have to do is take up our cross. Afflictions may be thrust upon us. A cross is something that you either willingly take up or willingly lay down. And the third thing you have to do is what? Follow after him. Holding fast to him the whole way to your life's and journey's end. Now, you say, what's the motivation for doing that? Well, Jesus gives us two motivations here. He says, for whoever would seek to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will what? Find it. It's in following, it's in denying yourself, taking up your cross and following me that you save your soul. The second thing is this, you will receive in glory rewards. There may be a cross in this life, but in the life to come, which is eternal, there will be a crown. So God forbid that any of us should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for this section of Matthew's Gospel so rich, so full. If we understand the message of this section, if we understand who Jesus is, what He came to do. And if we are willing to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow after Him, then we will be true disciples. And even though things may not always be easy for us because the cross is an invitation to come and die, we know that for you the cross is the gate, the portal to a new and resurrected life of glory. So grant us the courage, Lord, to glory in the cross of Jesus Christ And having committed ourselves to Him, take up our own cross and follow hard after Him all the way to the journey's end. that We may hear on that last day, well done, good and faithful servant. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.